Philip Jerry Stringer is originally from Richmond, Virginia. He's a 1977 graduate from the University of Virginia Arts and Sciences Department. For over 30 years, he's been the research scientist in the UVA's climatology office, which is housed in the Environmental Sciences Department at UVA. For the last five years, he's been its director. Um, you can often see him on the local news talking about uh, severe weather conditions and what's coming up here in Virginia. Um, I believe I see him on NBC and Newsplex quite often. Um, his research focuses mainly on the relationship uh, between climate and biological human uh, systems. His personal interests are amateur radio, old cars, and rescuing cats. Maybe he'll talk to us a little bit about that as well. So help me welcome Jerry Strainer. He's going to be speaking to us about wild weather, never a dull season in Virginia. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, so this is the eighth out of, uh, out of eight. Okay, seven out of eight is not bad. So uh, you're, you're already a winner in that regard. Uh, in any event, thank you all for coming today, and I hope I can uh, give you a little bit of food for thought here. Um, I changed the uh, subtitle of it to 400 years and counting. Uh, hopefully that'll become kind of obvious as we go along. But I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, wild weather in Virginia. I get a lot of questions about that, about why the, why the weather's so weird or wacky or wild and any uh, other thing else that starts with W people ask me about. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about here is a uh, couple of... Uh, interesting things about, uh, about severe weather in Virginia and some incidences from the past. Uh, some of you, uh, in fact, a lot of you folks may even remember some of these things. Uh, so people ask me, what's, what's going on and why can't you, they don't really say weather professionals, forecast it better. <laughs> Virginia is bordered on one side by a warm ocean uh, warmed by the Gulf Stream here. You can see the thermal scan, the Gulf Stream coming up. And uh, so we have this plentiful source of moisture that, uh, that very often is, is warmer than the land, especially in the wintertime. But it's a good, a good source of moisture that's uh, able to evaporate off the ocean here. And uh, of course the land mass is kind of dry. We also have the the jet stream, the, uh, that entity in the uh, a band of fast flowing air in the upper atmosphere that uh, helps to define the boundary between warm and cold air. And that very often is waffling back and forth across Virginia. Uh, in the wintertime it'll be uh, sometimes on us, sometimes south of us. In the summertime it'll lift off to the north but it'll also uh, occasionally dip back down on us. So we're at the, the juncture of all these factors and they can combine to make the weather here very interesting, uh, very severe sometimes, and give rise to almost every weather type you can think of. And it also makes it extremely difficult to forecast here. Now as much as I may rag on the weather service <coughs> and uh, much of the time. To tell you the truth, it is very difficult to forecast here because we are on the cusp of, of these different conditions. And very often, especially for wintertime forecasting, precipitation types, it's really hard to get those boundaries right because if you miss them by 20, 30 miles, you've blown everything and the forecast models aren't necessarily even, uh, uh, the, or the distance between um, observation points for sending up weather balloons is far greater than that. <clears throat> so first thing I'm going to talk about is hurricanes or also all tropical systems in Virginia. And uh, people are often asking me, uh, how often do they affect Virginia? How often do they, do they enter Virginia? And how often in history is Virginia, does Virginia take the brunt of a landfalling hurricane? The, uh, it turns out the effects on Virginia are 
are from many, many storms. A lot of them we will get at least some moisture from the remnants of the storms or they will contribute in some way to, uh, to movement of fronts and such. In any event, uh, we get a lot of effects from, from these tropical systems. Sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they can be disastrous. <clears throat> uh, usually about two or three per year have a noteworthy effect on our weather. They'll bring in a lot of, very often they'll just bring in a lot of moisture, which makes quite a difference. <clears throat> Excuse me. Over the years, counting since 1851, 67 of these systems, or their remnants after they stopped being tropical systems, have actually tracked directly into Virginia. And uh, it's interesting that uh, obviously most come from the Atlantic. We've actually had three of them over the years that came in from the Pacific. Not very common, but uh, it can indeed happen. Generally speaking, when we talk about Virginia's probability of receiving a direct landfalling hurricane, um, first I have to consider the fact that for most hurricanes, this is a very typical sort of track for hurricanes. Sometimes it, uh, this has shifted a little more inland, sometimes a little further out to sea. Because these storms come, especially the ones coming off the coast of Africa, move along in an eastwardly direction with the trade winds, and then as they move north, they'll encounter the jet stream and the westerlies, and they'll be curved back out. And a lot of them will eventually go up and become non-tropical and hit the coast of Scotland, of uh, Ireland and such, which is one of the reasons why it's so stormy. But generally speaking, we have this recurved, um, this recurving of these. Now, if you look at the relative probability of a landfalling hurricane, you see that Virginia is one of the lowest probability places on the entire East Coast. You've got to go up to Massachusetts before you can hit something, uh, probability that low. If you go around the Gulf Coast, it's even higher. Uh, if you look at the geography, you'll see why. Uh, why it's so high in here. Because, uh, you know, this, you know, it's like a boxer sticks his chin out a little too much. And these, uh, these guys get clobbered, that's why the outer banks are always getting uh, getting pummeled because these, these storms come up, it's difficult for them to turn around and get into Virginia without, without hitting this. And as soon as they make landfall, they tend to weaken very quickly. So Virginia is surprisingly protected from landfalling hurricanes. We still get storm surge. We can still get a lot of moisture being brought in, but we don't get a lot of the the high winds and the, uh, the real severe coastal damage uh, like you'll see in, in states further south. So the question is, uh, when did that last ha happen? And if you look at this, these may be, uh, 1667 may indeed be the last time that we actually got a full-on landfalling hurricane in Virginia. Uh, best we can tell from looking back at the records. Now, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, in London, it was published an account of the strange news from Virginia. Started out this poor country, and it didn't get my fonts right. Oh, I had real cool fonts there. But uh, this was a big deal in England because they were not familiar with tropical storms. They hadn't encountered hurricanes because by the time any of these storms get over to England, they're, uh, they're what we call mid-latitude or non-tropical cyclones. Because of that, these, are, uh, these were quite the, uh, quite the rage in England to hear about these. And they, uh, they came up with various pronunciations of the, uh, the term hurricane uh, so they called them Harry Canes or Hurry Canes and all kinds of things before the, uh, before the internet got everything straightened out on that. But, but certainly these were monster storms. Uh, look at the accounts of them in 1667. One of the accounts was that 
um, onshore, over 10,000 houses were blown down. Now, in 1667, I can't think how many houses they had at that time. But 10,000 had to be a pretty big chunk of what they had available. So it was quite, quite impressive. So uh, we certainly have not had all the bad hurricanes recently. Uh, if you look far enough back, you'll find bad weather. If you, you wait long enough, you'll find bad weather. There's never any shortage of it here in Virginia. One of the other things that's important to remember about the effects of hurricanes on Virginia is the fact that uh, they're responsible for a lot of the precipitation that falls, especially late in the growing season. Um, in September, for instance, on the uh, eastern part of the state, it can be 30% or more of the average long-term the long-term average precipitation for that area. That's prime agricultural uh, territory out there. And when there's a year with relatively few tropical systems impacting Virginia, you tend to have a year with very dry conditions at the end of the growing season, which can affect uh, agriculture in Virginia. So a lot of times we actually rely on that moisture, hopefully without too many of the deleterious effects, but when we don't get it, it can lead to uh, uh, drought conditions, or it can, if we get enough, it can break a drought very quickly. Now what, uh, what's coming up for the future and why do we seem to be having so many of these storms lately, except for this year when there were only, I believe, two hurricanes <clears throat> this past uh, hurricane season. Um, one of these is what we call the Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation. Climatologists love stuff like this because it's part of the, you know, you, you got to have your jargon so that you can, uh, <clears throat> you can impress people or we call it the AMO, so uh, as opposed to the HMO, but <laughs> though, though they can both be pretty debilitating. Uh, in any event, if we look at this, we, and the reason it's called multi-decadal is because we look at the sea surface temperatures in the areas where uh, these storms form, uh, the hurricanes form, we see uh, every few decades or so, it tends to switch rather decidedly uh, from warmer temperatures to cooler temperatures. And these, uh, these both coincide with increases and decreases, respectively, in the, um, in the number and severity of hurricanes that are available, the activity overall in the Atlantic Basin. Now, if you've ever been out to, uh, uh, let's see, what's the, uh, to Rehoboth Beach or are out in a lot of the, uh, the development along the shore in Maryland and such. You'll see where there's been all this development. Look at on Hatteras in that area. All this development on the Outer Banks. Well, a lot of that started up in this period because people were thinking, oh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, heck, you know, we're just not getting that many storms here. So the insurance underwriters were happy to... Uh, to take on the risk for these things, and now they're crying the blues because we've switched back to a period of time where the, uh, the sea surface temperatures are higher and we're having more active hurricane seasons. Um, and looking at this and uh, projecting forward from the past here, it su strongly suggests that we're going to be in for more of that for another, uh, at least another decade or two. So uh, I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go investing too heavily in beachfront property right now unless you wanted to buy the property that was two rows back from the beach. That might not be a bad idea. <coughs> uh, I'm going to talk about one specific instance that involved a tropical system, hurricane, about 44 years ago. And yes, I hear that, uh, that happy name being recited all over the place. Uh, probably the, uh, uh, the most uh, dramatic weather event we've seen in, uh, in recent times in Virginia. <clears throat> um, Hurricane Camille, K-2, 
came ashore as a Category 5 along the, uh, the Gulf Coast. And by the time it got uh, to this point, it was already down to a tropical depression. That is, winds uh, less than 39 miles per hour sustained. So it wasn't a very, wasn't very much to it. In fact, one of the things that used to happen a lot back then is when the National Hurricane Center would stop tracking it after it got weakened to a certain point, uh, the news coverage went away, all the interest in the storm evaporated, uh, a lot of people's uh, attention to these storms evaporated. But that was not necessarily a good idea because a couple of days later, we have the remnants of Camille, the tropical depression at that point, uh, though a, probably a very weak one, but still had tropical characteristics. And we had a nice cold front that was coming in from the north. And as the cold front advanced and Camille advanced, we had an interaction that wasn't very pleasant for the folks in Nelson County particularly because we had all this remnant moisture and the, uh, the uplift that was provided by the remnants of Camille along with the, uh, the enhanced uplift from uh, the advancing cold front. And the uh, net result was where the heaviest rainfall came down in uh, the higher elevations in Nelson County. Officially, uh, about 27 inches came down in eight hour period. That's based on extensive surveys of the, of the area. Um, not just rain gauges, because most rain gauges were completely overflowed, had completely overflowed by then. But there is a very reasonable estimate that comes from other sources, though because they weren't verifiable, they were not, they don't appear as official, of, uh, oops, of as much as 40 inches in eight hours and it's estimated that most of that probably came down in just three hours. Um, that actually represents probably what we call the probable maximum precipitation. That is, the amount, uh, the amount of precipitation that could even theoretically come down in a given location. So it was, it's, it would almost be impossible to find heavier rainfall rates ever. Um, there's a nice little quote from the Daily Progress. I just held my children to me. The bed was floating and the whole house came apart. Threw me into the water and I couldn't hold them anymore. I never saw them again. These stories were all over the place <coughs> uh, from the survivors of this. People found um, caught in trees, sometimes alive, sometimes not. Many people were never, have never been recovered. They don't even know where they are. They were buried under the landslides and such. And uh, the Daily Progress called it uh, the night the earth came undone because the rainfall was so intense coming down the sides of these, uh, these hills that it actually scoured the soil down to bedrock and brought down big chunks of forest and uh, left these scars on the mountainside where the, uh, the debris flowed down. And uh, they're still there today. If you, uh, if you go down toward, uh, down into Nelson County and drive back toward the north on 29, you'll see it off to the left. And the, uh, that still has not healed to this day. Um, boulders came crashing down the side of the mountain and uh, a good friend of mine who's a researcher at, at UVA looking at uh, studying the effects of uh, heavy floods like this reliably estimated that boulders over a meter in diameter were carried by the flood waters as suspended sediment. 
they're entrained in the flow, not just bouncing along. Uh, not good. Uh, I found this picture especially poignant, and of course my neighbor knows why, because otherwise perfectly good 52 Plymouth, and it just, you know, that, that was truly sad for me. I, I mean, the human, the human loss is one thing, but, but classic cars just, uh, you know, that's, that's a bit beyond the pale. <laughs> that one night, 126 people in Nelson County alone died. Over 900 buildings destroyed, 133 bridges wiped out. And if you drive around in that area to this nowadays, wherever, whenever the highway department, the VDOT, puts in a bridge, they'll almost always put a little plaque on the bridge that says when it was built. If you drive around in there, all the plaques say 1970, 71, 72, because they had to rebuild just about every bridge of any kind all over Nelson County as a result of that. One of the other problems was that it took a long time before people had any concept of the extent of the damage. The people in Nelson County themselves didn't even know it because they just figured it just happened to them. Everything was so devastating. They're trying to look for their family members and friends who've become lost. And all the roads were cut, telephone lines down. Uh, I guess the cell phones weren't working either. And the uh, and uh, power lines, there was virtually no communication with the outside world. So people knew that, well, I can't get hold of Uncle, Uncle Carl. I hope he's okay. Well, Uncle Carl is, uh, is hung up in a tree somewhere trying to figure out how to get down. But uh, one of the few means of communication that was available was amateur radio. And amateur radio operators were the people who were able to get the word out to the outside world that you know, we're in a world of hurt here. Um, <clears throat> police and emergency crews that wanted to get there had to go up in the mountains and then come back down some of the few roads that were still available. Route 29 was, uh, was severed, Route 6 was severed, and uh, because so many bridges were out, it was almost impossible to get around. One of the other things I read that uh, I think is very, very interesting is that the large number of birds that were found dead clinging to their perches, their perches who had drowned in the trees from the massive amount of water that was coming down. I presume that unlike turkeys, they did not look up. How do it go over better, given what day it is? I, <laughs> do I see, do I see too many purple in the audience? Uh, but the nice thing about that is at least we knew that from everything we could tell that that was an extremely rare event. And we're not likely to see anything like that again in our, in our lifetime. Oops. Uh, we had a situation where we have a stalled front, an upper air disturbance, little kink in the jet stream that adds to uh, vertical motion. Uh, some tropical moisture, not from a, just a good tropical moisture feed coming up from the Gulf. Uh, these things managed to link up. And uh, one morning in a climatology office, not too very far from here, we saw this. This is the way we got radar back in there. It wasn't as schnazzy as we have now, but Nonetheless, it was uh, good enough to see that, hmm, this is funny. We've got this line of thunderstorms that's moved through. We've got Charlottesville here. This is up in uh, Madison County. And uh, these storms are moving on through, but what's going on there? The radar's stuck. Because there's no way that's, uh, that's real. I mean, that would be incredibly intense precipitation. Uh, in that area there where I drew the circle. So 
either somebody's getting really hammered or this has just got to be a glitch in the radar. So we kept watching it and watching it, and that spot didn't move. We thought, wait a minute, let me turn on the radio. Special report, bridge out here, bridge out there, flood waters there. And we go, oh no, that's real. That's an incredible amount of water. In fact, it's estimated to have been about 25 inches in six hours. Not quite up to Camille standards, but not bad for Madison County, you know? And uh, what did we see? Debris flows coming down the hillsides. Oh, there's Route 29, expect delays. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't even try going north, but um, they actually were able to clear off one of the spans, the downstream span, and uh, have that open for a while, and it took a long time to get that all cleaned up. It was not, not a happy experience. And uh, look at this, we've got boulders coming down the hillside, and you can see from the fellow in the picture, he's pretty tall too. That, uh, we're carrying down some pretty good boulders, probably not carried along quite the way uh, Camille did, but nonetheless, these big debris avalanches where we have the, uh, uh, this topsoil, the, all the soil stripped off. Gosh, does this look familiar? Hmm. So because of that, we started realizing uh, there had been a little bit of speculation about this beforehand in the scientific literature, but it came very clear that this, pro this possibility, this uh, not too improbable sort of event has been, uh, has been around for a long time, and the risk of it has been around for a long time. <clears throat> what we call terrain locked rainfall or terrain locked precipitation or event where um, essentially, and I could never put together a good diagram of this, but the, uh, the idea is if you have, that a, a thunderstorm as it moves along has to essentially keep moving in order to keep getting a good feed of warm, moist air from the surface and to exhaust the cooler, drier air behind it. If the, uh, the thunderstorm isn't moving along, it tends to weaken and stall out. But if it's in the mountainous terrain such that there's a nice, the terrain helps to feed fuel into it, warmer, moister air into it, this is what happened when we had that, uh, that front that came down and we had a good moisture feed. And the terrain will help it gain more fuel and exhaust the, uh, the cooler, drier air, so the thunderstorm doesn't need to go anywhere. It's fine sitting right there. It can remain intense for a long period of time, and that's what we discovered, is that these events are probably not all that unusual, that we're seeing these things now and putting two and two together and realizing, oops, there is a problem, and this is, uh, as I say, one of the more interesting weather phenomena that we uh, had never really discovered. These sorts of things uh, also occur in the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina and in some other areas, but Virginia has been uh, particularly a good place for these to happen. Again, a lot of times you've, because we're on the boundaries of warm and cool air the jet stream descends upon us and we get frontal boundaries coming through. Um, I mentioned a little bit about tornadoes in Virginia. This picture was taken uh, during an outbreak in Suffolk and uh, southeastern Virginia in April 2008. This was actually taken from uh, uh, a car, uh, at the windshield of a car was driven by this guy who was chasing after the tornado and uh, <clears throat> there's a technical term in the weather business for folks that do this, it's called insane. 
<laughs> and there's plenty of people that do this, and it just means that they're all insane because uh, not only uh, do you run the risk of having this thing take a sudden turn and come to the road where you are, but uh, if you're not careful about looking up all the time, it can drop another funnel right down on top of you, and that's uh, uh, some, a lot of tornado chasers have come to grief because they, uh, they failed to look up. <clears throat> but the, uh, what we might call a typical or more common tornado in Virginia, uh, in this case, this was uh, spawned by, by Hurricane Irene as uh, part of it uh, came ashore, uh, came along the coast of Virginia. It turns out that most of the tornadoes in Virginia come from the demise of tropical systems. As these storms move ashore, uh, come ashore, say, in uh, North Carolina, as they move up into Virginia and they decay, that moisture and those thunderstorms associated with it keep going, and a lot of the rotational energy that's in that storm gets transferred into um, rotation that, uh, wind shear that can give rise to tornadoes. Now, they tend, fortunately, to be on the weaker side. If we, uh, uh, you've heard of the F scale, the Fujita storm scale, F0 through F5. F0 is uh, not terribly uh, strong winds. <clears throat> onto F5, which will pretty much destroy anything in its path. Um, these tend to be on the, uh, in the F0, F1 range for the most part. So thank goodness for that. We don't tend to get the very intense tornadoes. Uh, but here's one, the deadliest tornado in Virginia history. It was in 1929, and it was in the... Uh, in rugged terrain down in, uh, I believe it was Scott or Russell County, and uh, a school full of children and teachers had the misfortune to be in the path of it, and it killed, uh, uh, here they mentioned 13. I think the, uh, uh, I think the final tally was uh, in the 20s. Um, so that makes it the, the deadliest tornado in Virginia history. So uh, much, so much for the uh, the myth that mountainous terrain keeps you safe from tornadoes. They can still form under any terrain in Virginia, and the uh, the truth is that you they tend to be less common in the rugged terrain, but they can form. And they can be quite, uh, quite impressive when they do. Uh, I'll just mention a couple more things about tornadoes. Um, we now have Doppler radar, which uh, is able to uh, determine rotation in the uh, upper air as a result of the, uh, of the tornadic activity. And, uh, and right here, this is uh, out of Cleveland. As a matter of fact, but uh, you'll see that the the green and the red indicating movement toward and away from the radar are very intense right next to each other. That's a signature of strong rotational motion, and a tornado warning was issued, and sure enough, a big tornado touched down right in that area. So the point is, the Doppler radar is used as the basis for these early warnings. Now, a lot of people complain that. <clears throat> well, we got all these tornado warnings lately, and there's never a, a tornado. Well, that's because the radar can't see on the ground. But the best warning we can get is looking for this rotational signature higher up in the atmosphere. And if they see that, that's the only warning you're going to get. So they've got to issue a warning, and you need to heed it because you're probably not going to get any better notification than that, even if... It, doesn't, it means that it doesn't touch the ground. Uh, a lot of people ask if the uh, tornado is becoming more frequent. Uh, there are a lot of confounding factors, more people. We have Doppler radar. We can spot these things. A lot of people are more aware of it. 
if a tornado blew down a tree in uh, Farmer John's back 40, he didn't necessarily get too upset with it or even necessarily notice it because he had better things to worry about. Now it's coming down in somebody's uh, backyard. One of the ways to look at this is uh, looking at the uh, tornadoes by year, all categories. 2005 is a big year. That's because that was the record, record number of uh, tropical systems that, and remnants that crossed into Virginia. Again, that's what spawned most of these storms. And, but if we take out the, uh, the very weak tornadoes, just look at the ones from F2 and above, uh, moderate to severe tornadoes, we don't see a big trend. We still see 2005 sticking out, and uh, I think it's 1958 sticking out here. But for the most part, there's no particular trend. So we don't, uh, these new techniques have allowed us to spot a lot of the weaker storms that we hadn't uh, been necessarily paying attention to before. But when you take those out, you don't see a big change in it. So the question, it's hard to tell if we are getting more tornadoes or not. It's just not, uh, no one's come up with a good way of comparing those. And uh, in any event, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to end it here. Is that right? Because I think we're, oh, oh, okay. My watch must be completely good. Okay, well, that's fine. <laughs> in any event, uh, I'll mention one other thing here that's, uh, because a lot of people have been asking about it. Uh, new word of the day here. Uh, that we, that I didn't know, and uh, most of the climatologists I talked to, in fact, all of them, even folks from the Weather Service didn't, didn't know this, was derecho. <laughs> Excuse me. That was quite a, quite a good one. People say, oh, what about this derecho? I go, what? I'm like, are, are you, what ratio? So, a ratio of what? Well, I had to look it up. Other people had to look it up. This is after I called the guys at the Weather Service who used the word, <laughs> who told the, that word to the press. And I said, uh, what's the duration? I'm like, uh, uh, I'm not sure. I had to look it up. <laughs> well, it turns out that it's, uh, it's fairly uncommon in Virginia. We probably get a, a real duration about once every four years or so in Virginia. I only mention it here because it was so recent and because a lot of people ask about it. Um, but it's made of, uh, it's a line, a continuous line of strong thunderstorms. It moves along usually over a long distance. It's long lived and tends to retain its strength over time. Um, usually it doesn't give rise to much of any tornadic activity. When these move through Virginia, the derecho move through Virginia, it spawned no tornadoes. Uh, which is very interesting. You normally think strong thunderstorms, chance of tornadoes, but not the way these work. Um, usually kills people by knocking trees over. In fact, I think it was uh, in Virginia, five people died, all from having trees fall on them or their cars or their houses. So it can, so that tr those tr darn trees can be pretty, uh, pretty deadly. And, uh, it's characterized mostly by strong downburst winds. And I should point out that uh, a lot of people have the impression that, well, if it's just straight line winds, it can't be but so bad. It's tornadoes that cause the real damage. Well, actually, the downburst winds can be as damaging as some of the weaker tornadoes, and they can cover a much larger area. So even though it wasn't a tornado, it doesn't mean you didn't get very strong winds, and that's what can knock down lots and lots of trees. Here in Charlottesville, it was devastating. Uh, emergency workers couldn't get any, anywhere. They had to spend all their time cutting trees out of the road so they could get to the next tree that was down in the road. Um, yes, a microburst is a type of downburst winds, um, wind, uh, and they can occur in all sizes, um, but uh, uh, they occur usually because in a thunderstorm you have very strong vertical motion up and down. When that uh, burst of wind 
is strong enough to go crashing out of the bottom of the thunderstorm, it hits the ground. Now, when it hits the ground, it has nowhere to go except to spread out. And when it does, it accelerates. So it can blow out along the ground easily in the 60, 70, 80 mile per hour range in that, that strong gust. And that can, uh, that can ruin your whole day. That can certainly take shingles, shingles off a roof. It can take over, knock down trees. It can cause all sorts of damage that a lot of times people associate with tornadoes. Um, so there's certainly nothing to, uh, to sneeze at in that regard. Uh, here's a, a radar, a series of radar pictures of it. Now this uh, line of storms was moving through at about 60 miles an hour. Uh, they started off up in uh, Indiana and Illinois and moved right across and it uh, came through here uh, late in the day on, on uh, June 30th and see that nice organized line of thunderstorms. Very few places in Virginia were spared. This is uh, the radar station in Sterling, uh, Charlottesville down here. All this stuff is what we call ground clutter. It's because the radar beam hits things on the ground and you have a false return. But here's your, here's your nice line of thunderstorms coming through. And this is a derecho. Now, we used to not use the term derecho. We always called it a line of strong thunderstorms with strong downburst <laughs> winds. But I guess somebody had to come up with duration, which actually was created by a German climatologist or meteorologist back in the 1800s. And I don't think anybody used it since then. <laughs> it comes from a Spanish word meaning straight ahead. Okay, I don't know why we, I don't know, line of strong thunderstorms with strong gusty winds work for me. I guess, you know, it's like El Nino. If El Nino was called, uh, well, we used to call it the Southern Oscillation. Who's going to put Southern Oscillation? People are going to want to know about El Nino. They want to know about the kid. Now we got La Nina, which never existed until somebody tried to think, what's the opposite of El Nino? La Nina. Um, here's an example of some of the, uh, the damage in this area. This, uh, this nice uh, damage to a house there, again, from a falling tree. Um, and that's, what, uh, that's the big problem with uh, straight line winds. So. Uh, I'm going to close out now, and I hope I'm not running too short or too long or anything. Uh, I'm going to just tell you something about, since this is the game day, uh, I have an important weather safety reminder for everybody out there. And because of the, the game today, I hope nobody will be offended by this, but you may have some friends from Blacksburg that are, that are here. And you want to be sure and give them some important safety tips. So when we have a storm coming through, tell them not to stand under the lone tree on the hilltop. That's, that's a bad thing to do for, for lightning protection because otherwise something like this could happen. And then you wind up <laughs> trying, to figure out, trying to figure out how you're going to fit all this into your refrigerator. So, so please, please be kind to our adversaries today and try to keep them, keep them safe and uh, we won't wind up having to eat turkey well into uh, Easter. Thank you all very much. <laughs> Sorry about the mic there. Thanks for... <laughs> oh, well. In any event, I'm supposed to allow questions now. Hi. Pardon? <laughs> oh, 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 we, uh, okay, I got to defer to whoever has the microphone. Um, you have this talking stick or whatever. Thank you for your presentation today. Well, you You're are. obviously here to talk about um, the big storms, the big devastations, because nobody's interested in the typical rainstorm. 
And I wanted well, to know. We're interested in it, but uh, unless you guys want yeah. to sit here for about four hours. But obviously, it's the huge storms that impact the greater community, shuts down communications, topples the trees, causes devastations. Right. Um, a lot of people need help desperately and quickly. I wanted to know if you know anything about uh, Charlottesville's CERT team, Community Emergency Response Team, no, so I that you could not. share it with folks. I do not. Um, and uh, if you have anything to mention about that uh, briefly, that'd be fine. Sure. Um, I was, okay, so Community Emergency Response Team, CERT, is um, operated through the police station by a woman by the name of Kirby Feltz. Uh -huh. Her phone number is 971-1263. Okay. Um, they train the local community in how to protect themselves, their families, and assist in your local uh, neighborhoods to help in devastating situations so that people can be more prepared of how to handle emergency systems uh -huh. and, um, and help those around them. Okay. Um, if you'd like to talk to me about that and give me a little more background on that, that'd be fine. And being an amateur radio operator, I'm aware of <coughs> the importance of providing emergency communications, and I appreciate that. But you're right about one thing. It's the, we're prepared to handle the everyday events or the these fairly rare events. But when you have a monumental event like what happened in Nelson County, it's beyond what you can normally have available. And uh, it is important to have something in place that you can, you can ramp it up as quickly as possible. Uh, yes, do we have another microphone holder here? We've got one right oh, here. Oh, there we go. Hi, thank, thank you for speaking today. Um, could, would you be willing to hazard a guess what the average temperature in Charlottesville will be in 30 years? No. <laughs> no. And do you, as part of that, do you view climate change really as oscillating weather, like the, the incidence of hurricanes? Yes. Uh, there is an, uh, there's a tendency for the you know, we know that over geologic time spans, there have been changes in, in temperature. Uh, one of the things I should mention here is um, we know that the global temperatures for the last uh, 40 years or so have risen substantially. We have a good period of record on those using uh, satellite data, which are very good at measuring temperatures, land, sea, everywhere. <coughs> The question is, um, when we talk about, you say, what's the temperature in Charlottesville? As you get smaller and smaller in scale, there's a disconnect from that. In fact, if you just go down to the state level, looking at Virginia, and you look at the relationship between the temperatures in Virginia and those globally, there's very, very little correlation. There's only about 20% of the variance in the Virginia temperatures that's explained by changes in global temperatures. 80% of it is other factors. We don't know what they are. So when you get smaller and smaller scales, there's more of a disconnect between locally and globally. So any local changes have a bigger effect than global scale temperatures. And that's one of some reasons why it's hard to say what the temperatures are gonna be. Chances are, I would say, they're gonna go up if for no other reason than we're building more stuff. And as you urbanize more, we know the urban warming effect. And chances are fairly good that that's gonna, that alone could account for a lot of change. Uh, there are some cycles. The rate of warming we've seen lately seems to be higher or more rapid than we've seen in the past. But again, the question is, what's driving this? And on what is it superimposed that we don't know about? The answer is there's so much we don't know. This is why there's so many PhDs to be had in this. They will never run out of that. But thank you anyway. Um, OK. Yes, thank you also for being here. And um, my interest is on climate change uh -huh. and having uh, read the 
uh, synopsis of the last IPCC report. And there seems in that report to be high confidence that uh, things will continue to uh, become more extreme. And I was I, wondering. I ask you a question. Did you, what part of it did you read? The executive summary? Ju yes, just the executive summary. I, I invite you, if you're willing to do it, to read the whole thing, all the individual right. reports. Right. The reason being that the there's a smaller group of people that put together the executive the summary. And there's more detail. In, I have not read all of them. I've just read enough to, <laughs> and uh, that there's more detail in those that presents some, tends to present some more of the uncertainties in it than is, uh, is enumerated in the executive summary. But the answer is, we have no reason to think that the whatever the forcings are that are going on now are going to change any time in the future. Now the question of is this going to lead to more severe weather, less severe weather, change? The problem is it's a case of if we change the globally average temperatures, how are we changing the whole ocean atmosphere circulation? And until we can fully understand that, we're not going to have a real good handle on, on what's going on. That's the, the basis of it. And there's a lot of work being done on that, a lot of uh, new computer models being created. But uh, it's still beyond our grasp. Again, the PhD problem is there. But thank you very much. Any questions? Jane, we've got one right here. Did that, did that take care of? What you were saying? Okay, okay. I am. I'll say this. I am. My area of expertise is not climate change. The reason being, if you want to be up on that, you can do nothing else. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You can't do anything because you can pick up darn near any scientific journal on any given day, and it'll be packed jammed with articles that relate to climate change. So I really can't do much better than that. But you have another, one more thing? I just want to know how much of your office of climatology does focus on climate change itself. I just said I don't. I'm the whole office. <laughs> so if I don't, nobody does. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, and if I had somebody else working there, uh, I've got plenty of other things for them to do. So I, I leave that to, to the folks who, uh, to the IPCC and to other folks who, um, who can focus on that. And I don't mean to argue with what their conclusions are. I just know that there's a lot of, there's a lot that's not known. And I can't overemphasize that. But if you were to play, you know, it's like uh, the race is not always to the swiftest nor the fight to the strongest, but that's the way to bet. So it's kind of that sort of thing. If, uh, if I had to bet, then I would bet that the temperatures are going to continue to increase on a global scale. So I do agree with that part of it. But I don't know how to break it down to, to a finer scale than that and exactly what to expect for different storms and such because they're varying factors, uh, even amidst uh, IPCC findings. Hi. You've, uh, thank you for all the information you've given us about wild weather and the warm season. I'm wondering if you could speak just a bit, since we're going into winter, about the um, snowmageddon of 2009, I believe it was, and what Well, uh, that? I can just say something briefly, because I, I really had to keep it <laughs> to cut back a lot. I could have gotten into all kinds of things, but I decided to focus on, uh, I started out with all kinds of things, and I finally had to cut it back and cut it back to the point where I just dealt with a few important things. <clears throat> um, the, uh, well, the snowmageddon, a lot of times in Virginia, the trick is you've got to get the cold air and you got to get the moist air, and you got to get them at the same time. And that's the trick, and that's why I 
forecasting for uh, forecasting ahead of time for temperature precipitation in mid-Atlantic states is woefully difficult. Nobody can do it. Uh, right now, the weather service forecast for the winter is basically unknown. <laughs> and it very often is because unless there's some clear signals, it, the models don't work worth the toot in the mid-Atlantic. Why? Because of that, that uh, conjunction of forces that I mentioned earlier and the fact that you can just change a few things. And you can have a really cold winter or a really wet winter, but unless the, or you can have a cold, wet winter. But unless the cold and the wet are there at the same time, you don't get snowfall. Um, in 09-10, we just lined up just right. We had the moisture, simply put, we had the moisture, we had the, uh, the cold air, and we had the jet stream in the right position to provide a little lift to get everything started. And that's what, that's what led to it. And, uh, and it did set, uh, it was a record setter for, uh, for Charlottesville and much of, the, much of the state. But that's briefly the answer to that. I think we've got time for one or two more. I find it a little bit disturbing that you would uh, kind of take the executive summary of the IPCC uh, and say that it is at odds uh, with the content and the detailed didn't content. Mean, didn't mean to say that. Okay, that's what I inferred. I'm sorry. Okay, no, didn't mean to say that. Okay, question. Uh, you indicated that in 2004, the uh, hurricane frequency was high. Right. And in 2005, the tornado frequency was high. No, 2005. Five, five the tornado was high. Did I say? I did. I labeled it wrong. I'm sorry. It was 2004 that the tornado frequency was very high. Okay, was there a relationship between those two events? Uh, the large number of hurricanes in, and the... In one year and uh, tornadoes in the next year or previous. Uh, I, was, I was mistaken. The, uh, let, me <coughs> let me look back at that. Uh, they were supposed to be at the same year, and if I got the, the graph wrong, I'm sorry about that, because 2004 was the biggest year for tropical systems or remnants coming through Virginia, and it was the biggest tornado year. And I, th I think I did. I mislabeled those, and I implied it was one it was one year, one was the next. So the answer is um, <clears throat> uh, no. One doesn't seem to predict the other. The answer is that uh, it was just that uh, we got a lot, we got huge number of tornadoes spun off from those decaying systems, and we had plenty of those systems, and that's what gave rise to all the tornadoes that we had that year. But no, I didn't mean to, I, I want to clarify, I wasn't trying to say that the executive summary, summary was wrong. I'm just trying to say that they, when they put together the summary, they can't go through all the detail that's in the other reports. So sometimes one can get um, more of the background, I'm trying to say, sorry my mouth is dry, more of the background and all the caveats that go into this when one reads the basic reports. But the executive summary is, is again designed to try to condense it all down to some final ideas. But no, I wasn't trying to imply they were at odds. Final question. Yes, sir. I would guess that the executive summary is, is uh, put together by a committee. I uh, believe it is. That's all I have to say. <laughs> okay. I'm neither, uh, I'm neither endorsing it nor criticizing it. I, as I say, I don't, I don't deal with all the nuances of these. And if you're not up on everything virtually on a daily basis, you can fall behind on all this. So take anything I say about that with a grain of salt. But uh, the idea is, 
everybody is in agreement. There's, there's a lot we don't understand about the ocean atmosphere circulation, and that's really going to be how the global climate change will express itself. Um, and there's, there's so much more to talk about there, but uh, I invite you to find the people and sources that know a lot more than I do, the IPCC being one of them, actually. Thank Great. you. Of the Alumni Association and Lifetime Learning, we'd like to thank Jerry for his volunteering oh, his thank time. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, tissue paper. <laughs> I can't, I can't write my